0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change?
1: Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello there, this is Eat, Sleep, Work with me. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. This episode today is magnificent. You're really going to be stimulated and challenged by it. Now, I'm actually recording this in a hotel. If it sounds a little bit more echoey than normal. Also, it's one of those situations where the person upstairs seems to be trying to keep fit by moving furniture. So I'll try and edit out the worst noises. Before we dive into this, I want to say thank you to everyone who bought The Joy of Work. It was the eighth best-selling book last week, hardback book last week. If it hadn't been classed as a manual, then it would have been number three in the hardback non-fiction behind Michelle Obama and powerfully bearded military chap Ant Middleton. I have no idea who Ant Middleton is, but he looks like the man who's married to Dragon Lady in Game of Thrones. And uh, I'm not sure why my book got cast as a manual. They basically created that rule in the chart because recipe books, DIY volumes and fitness books sell so much more than everyone else. The chart was just looking boring. It was sort of Jamie Oliver battling Nigella every week. I could have been Sunday Times number three bestseller if I hadn't bothered putting any advice in there. It didn't seem to affect Jordan Peterson, the right wing columnist who who seemed to have been classified his 12 rules for life seem to have been okay so well done Jordan it's a fascinating industry it's really a, I, I discovered the week before it came out that uh, books only come out on the fifth day of the sales week so books come out on a Thursday but that's not the first day of the sales week they wanted to give Ant Middleton and Michelle Obama a fair chance so you uh, new books only get three days of sales God bless publishing. I am actually doing a, a PDF thing. that uh, If you're interested in publishing a book, probably by sort of March, April, I'll, I'll do a PDF thing that I'm very willing to send to anyone who finds themselves in that situation. Right. Today's episode is with someone I first contacted two years ago to discuss his previous book. Cal Newport's Deep Work was a simple advocation of the process of using uninterrupted concentration to get things done. He's now back with a new book about taking the same principles beyond work into life. Obviously, because we're talking about sort of the, the whole principles of managing your attention, I think it is relevant to, to this sort of eat, sleep, work, repeat dynamic. His book, Digital Minimalism, is a guide for achieving happiness by being more intentional in how you use technology. Some might call it a manual. Let's hope not, akel eh, What follows here is a sensational discussion with him. I heard someone say recently, if you hear a new idea and it's not shocking, it's not really new. And on that criteria, this is really new. You're going to find it mind expanding. Maybe you'll disagree with it. I disagree with quite a bit of it, but it'll leave you thinking and and questioning your own decisions. Now, Cal believes we should eliminate email. He thinks we should stop being connected to hundreds of people on social media. He thinks we should distinguish between social conversations and digital connections. He thinks we should eliminate all digital interactions altogether. Easy for him to say, maybe we'll go on and we'll explore to hammer home his key points. He speaks of three principles of digital minimalism. One clutter is costly. I think you can, we all can recognize that with 140 emails a day. I think we can recognize that we're surrounded with digital clutter. Optimization is important is his second principle. And I think that's just thinking about, is there a route to happiness by, by changing the way you're doing things. And finally, attentionality is satisfying. So, there are his principles. We're going to talk about it. Now, I'm not going to lie, I don't think the book is without its flaws. Cal gives a shout out to the Amish, or Amish as Cal pronounces it. You say oppression, I say oppression. The Amish are a regressive, male-dominated, oppressive culture and to casually reference them I think was a massive mistake. If they weren't white and Christian, I'm telling you now, they wouldn't be referenced in a book like this. And if Penguin have any sense, they'll suggest to him he removes them from the paperback. What's happening here? It's like saying, listen guys, I think the Taliban can teach us something about screen time for kids. No. No. No, it's not okay. Get out of here. Old white men making decisions, old white men creating an oppressive society. It's not okay to say we can learn from that. Sorry, no. Here's what we can learn from the Amish. Nothing. Next. Don't worry, I don't just find their inclusion obscene in an otherwise brilliant and wholesome book. But I actually create quite an awkward moment by presenting Cal with that egregious misjudgment. That aside, the discussion is outstanding. I loved it. We talk about if teams were smaller, it could help us. It tells us where we can go from here. His suggestion in the book that we touch on is that we should abandon weak digital ties with people. If you find yourself merely liking someone's photographs in the course of a year, then his suggestion is you should probably detach yourself from them. I remember when I was on Facebook thinking I was going to call anyone I wouldn't go over to and greet if I saw them in the street. And he says something uh, probably a couple of degrees, a bit more extreme than that. Not only is this chat great, but Cal tells me about his next book, which sounds incredible. I won't make a big introduction because I asked Cal to do that himself. So here he is. Here's Cal Newport talking about his book, Digital Minimalism. Callum, I'm thrilled to talk to you again. Uh, We spoke uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, And uh, I I just
2: wondered if, for the benefit of some of the listeners, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a computer science professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And so you can think of me as sort of a technologist, but I also uh, write. And in the last three or four years, I've really been focusing on the impact of these sort of technologies that people like me study on our culture, what, it, what they do to our ability to work productively or live meaningful or satisfying lives. And so that's, that's my double life, I sort of solve computer science theorems by day and write provocative books <laughs> about the impact of these technologies <laughs> by night. And when we chatted, we chatted last time, we
1: were talking very much about the concept of deep work. And that was something that I think really captured the imagination of the, the, the listeners. Certainly, you, you actually included something in that discussion talking about monk mode mornings um, that really sort of took hold. Do you want to sort of explain what the principles of that are? Because then we can take take that on and, and explain how you've pretty much brought deep work into a, a broader context. So firstly, what was what was the thinking
2: behind deep work? Well, the basic idea behind deep work is that uh, I was observing that the ability for people in a professional context to focus without distraction, so to give something an extended period of concentration, was diminishing. So we were losing this capability largely in part of new communication technology. So the advent of things like email and Slack and mobile connectivity uh, was really reducing our ability and capability of doing extended concentration at exactly the same time that it looked like to me that the knowledge work market was valuing the skill more. And so there was a sort of classic supply and demand mismatch here where something was becoming more rare at the same time it was becoming more valuable. So my pitch in that book was, if you're one of the few individuals or organizations to systematically prioritize and cultivate your ability to focus really intensely, you're going to have this huge competitive advantage. So you could think of it as unintended consequences of new technologies in the workplace and some things that we could do about it. Yeah. And and I guess modern work is very much engineered to and, and optimized
1: for interruptions. You're effectively saying that if you want to accomplish something, you need to remove yourself from from the often tempting uh, alternative of, of those
2: interruptions. Yeah, exactly. And the better you get at focusing and the more you prioritize it, generally speaking, uh, the more value you're going to produce and the better you're going to do in your career. I mean, essentially, I think the way that most knowledge work uh, organizations work today, uh, which is based on a constant unstructured ad hoc electronic conversation. So through email and Slack, let's just keep talking. Everyone can reach everyone. There's no particular structure to it. We just sort of have this conversation go on. Uh, I think it's in particular just a terrible way actually to try to extract value from human brains, which is really what you're trying to do in knowledge work. And so deep work in some sense is the opening salvo in what I think will probably be a broader transformation In the whole work landscape, where just as in the industrial era, we moved away from simplistic factory designs to things that produced product much more efficiently. I think in knowledge work, we're going to be shifting away over time from these communication based interruption driven workflows as we realize, hey, this is not getting us A lot out of these human brains so deep work is like the first step okay concentration is important we need to recognize that we need to see the cost of the interruptions and let's start thinking about at least some small things we can do uh, to to take advantage of that reality because i guess the first-hand
1: experience of the absence of deep work is is that feeling where you've been busy all day at work you've you feel like you've been working a lot but if someone asked you at the end of the day what you've accomplished it's All trivial. You've just cleared your inbox. You've attended six meetings. You've replied to 30 pings. You haven't actually accomplished something. And that's, I guess, why a lot of people find the the modern incarnation of work to be quite dissatisfying.
2: Yeah, it's really draining. I mean, a couple. One, just getting away from focus work and value creation can be draining. Two, it's it's overloading the social circuits in our brain to just constantly be communicating back and forth, to have the constant sensation that there's an inbox waiting with things for you to answer. Maybe that seemed good for the original geeks who invented the protocols back in the 1970s, but actually, that goes uh, really contrary to the way our brain is wired. Our brain is wired to be very worried about social obligation, which was very. Important around the campfire and the Paleolithic. Um, but when you when you extend that or extrapolate it to a thousand message inbox, now you're you're misusing these brain circuits. So you're completely stressed out and you don't even know why. Um, and this idea that you've spent all day moving information around meeting, talking about work, but very little time actually using your brain to create new value. We're somehow used to that in knowledge work. But if I was running, let's say the Tesla factory. And I said, hey, look, I just invested all this new money in this very complicated robot that puts you know doors on cars automatically. And they're like, great. Well, well, what what did it do today? If was like, well, it, it it ran diagnostic mode and then it did a self-configuration. And then it spent a few hours downloading sort of new performance specs from other machines. And that's about it. And you said, well, did it, did it put any doors on cars? Like, well, no, it didn't do that, but it did all these other things, which was seemed important. You would say, well, why do we spend all the money? This thing is supposed to put doors on cars. And it's really the same thing in knowledge work. I mean the capital resources human brains. You hire people, you pay them salaries, you put them in nice air-conditioned offices because you want human brains to think about information and produce value. Um, and so it's it, when seen from that perspective, it's somewhat ludicrous what we're doing, which is we're taking these high-priced, highly trained brains and then making them act like human network routers all day. Uh, and then we wonder in the end why uh, non-industrial productivity has stagnated over the last 15 years. We wonder why people are burnt out. We wonder why everyone has to suddenly run the second shifts at home uh, you know, after the kids go to bed just to try to get some... Things done. I mean, something is broken. I think when you and I chatted last time, you said, I think probably what brought
1: it into focus for you is from your computer engineering uh, background. You said that, you know, if Google was hiring the best engineers in the world, then it seems crazy that you don't just set them up to create code. You, you just you, you put barriers in their way yeah. and you create obligations. They almost prevent them from doing what they're hired to do, which is exactly to your Tesla point.
2: Yeah, I couldn't imagine why you would you would spend seven hundred thousand dollars a year on a ten X programmer and then give them an email address. It's crazy. I mean, how about you spend another 70000 and have a full time, really smart assistant that does nothing but take care of all of the logistical things for that 10x programmer? That's just a, a 10% drop in the bucket that could probably, based on the research I've seen on context switching, double or triple the performance that that really high priced brain is supposed to do. I mean, we understand this in athletics. We understand this in the industrial sector. We just haven't quite gotten our mind around it yet in work. We're just so, right now, just we like this Paleolithic campfire. Everyone one can just talk to everyone we'll figure it out on the fly we're just convinced that that's got to be the right way to run an organization um uh, it's it's just not and i it, it can't it can't be sustainable i think that's part of the reason why that book deep work hit a nerve is because i think i wasn't surprising anyone i was just articulating something that everyone already feels and is frustrated with so there's got to be some sort of change pretty close uh, up around the bend
1: yeah and so it really did take hold and was it a reaction to that that you then thought about how these principles would apply to a broader life? Or you, you mentioned in in the book that you um, that you scribbled down ideas in some nolds, moleskin notebooks that you've got at home. Was this was the whole of digital minimalism a concept that you'd had ages ago, or was it inspired by the success of Deep Work?
2: they were they were directly connected. So I. Uh, I finished deep work. It came out in 2016. And you know, this is about technology in your professional life. Um, and so I'm on the road. I'm talking to a lot of people. I get a lot of messages and I kept hearing this same response, which is okay. Um, I buy this premise. Let's say I agree with it, but what about the impact of technologies in our personal lives? And for a lot of people, they're saying this is just as bad. It's different, but the, the unintended consequences of these new technologies, um, in our personal life is having this huge negative consequence. Uh, and this is something that they were reporting, uh, not only as is an issue, but it has really shifted in the last two years. Um, you know, a few years ago, people would mainly tell self deprecating jokes about how often they looked at their phone. It was kind of funny and that's changed. And sometime in the last year or two, as I was talking to people after deep work, the way they started talking about what was happening in their personal life was this isn't funny so much as it is urgent. And that people were really starting to feel like, uh, They were using technology in their personal life much more than is useful, much more than is healthy, and to the detriment of things that they find much more important, and that it had reached a point where they were ready for some aggressive solution. So it really was being out there talking about deep work that I learned that this other aspect of new technologies, the aspect that has to do with what we do after work, what we do at home, what we do in our free time, was just as urgent for most people.
1: Because I guess fundamentally for someone to go on this journey that you start, the first stage has to be that recognition of the state of dissatisfaction, doesn't it? No one is going to embark upon this digital minimalism unless they've already decided
2: something's not quite right. Yeah, that's sort of the secret of uh, advice writing is the most successful books don't convince someone there's a problem. You just uh, you help people articulate a solution that they they already more or less know is true for a problem that they've long since accepted exist. And the time for digital, I think three years ago, the time wasn't quite right for digital minimalism. People were still self-deprecating. like Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look at the phone too much, but this is not. A big concern. I've got much bigger concerns in my life right now, and that's what's really shifted. That's why I think the the time is right for this message right now. You sort of remind us
1: of this the evolution, the stages of evolution that that have got us here. That you know, in the first iteration of the iPhone, it was just your phone bolted onto an iPod, and you know, there was no app store. There was no intention really to to control our consumptions in the, in the way that it's it's developed now so i guess like you say we've gone through different stages of evolution
2: there yeah was- yeah. And, and just to say briefly, uh, uh, a lot of people are having this feeling now that, hey, this is not what I signed up for. You know, People did buy the original iPhone because, hey, I don't have to carry an iPod and a separate cell phone. That's great. That's convenient. That's why they bought iPhones. The idea that you would check it 85 times a day, 200 times a day was not on anywhere near the radar of Steve Jobs or any of the original people who bought this phone. People signed up for Facebook in college because it, they wanted to see the relationship status of some friends. It was a novelty. They never Never expected that they would be using Facebook products um, you know 130 minutes a day on average like American users do. I mean a lot of these things yeah we signed up for innocent reasons or trivial reasons and then looked up five, 10 years later and are saying, wait a second, why is this having a, a stranglehold on my leisure time? The the one thing that I felt was the challenge
1: that digital minimalism is trying to solve. I underline this sentence, which is low-quality digital distractions play a more important role in people's lives than they imagine. So, do
2: you want to explain why? Yeah, it's an it's so it's interesting phenomenon what's going on. There's there's a couple different uh, threads the pull when trying to understand how we got to this place where people are starting to feel there's um, an urgent problem. Um, so, one thing, one big thing that's happening is uh, a lot of these tools that we get on our devices and through our screens uh, turn out to be, on purpose, much more alluring and moderately addictive than we realized. And so the reason why otherwise very disciplined people end up using their phone much more than they think is healthy is not that they have a sudden failure of discipline in this one particular area of their life. It's because many of these tools were expertly designed to create exactly that effect. It's like smokers who found that a little bit of willpower was not enough to quit cigarettes. There's actually something stronger at play. Um, so this is definitely an aspect. These tools have been designed because they're built on an attention economy model to be very, very alluring and very, very hard not to use compulsively. Um, so uh, we're using them as designed. The other issue is a little bit more philosophical, which is you know human beings thrive and crave high-quality activity with their leisure time. They want to do things that they do just for quality's sake. We, we can find this all the way back in Aristotle and the Nicomedean Ethics talking about this. Um, and we're, we're unhappy without it. But these, we have these distractions now that are so ubiquitous that we can kind of get away without actually having a lot of quality pursuits in our free time because we can just keep ourselves distracted. Um, so we have this void I want to do something sort of meaningful and quality and and pure uh, and value driven with my time. But we can paper over that void with all these constant distractions. But then that sort of traps you because if you start to peel back, like I don't have my phone today or something like this, it could be really scary because now you have to confront this void. What am I actually supposed to do with my time? So that's scary as well. So you have this sort of practical, addictive aspect, and then you have this deeper philosophical aspect that these phones and devices have been keeping us from the hard work of actually crafting a meaningful life
1: you talk through these three principles that that underpin digital minimalism so the first one being clutter is costly second one optimization is important and the third is intentionality is satisfying so let's go through uh, i think we've talked a little bit about clutter is costly but explain the mental cost of of clutter and what you mean by clutter
2: right and to set the stage for these principles i'll just you know briefly summarize so what exactly is digital minimalism. Um, so digital minimalism is the philosophy that I preach for taking back control of your digital life. And what it says you should do basically is start from a clean slate. So you wipe out of your life all of these sort of optional personal technologies that you use to sort of divert yourself or, or what have you, the stuff you use outside of the work context. Uh, And then you only allow back into your life the technologies that have a very strong case that they really give you a substantial return on something that's very valuable to you and everything else you're just happy to miss out on. Right. So this is the minimalist philosophy in a contrast with the maximalist philosophy, which says, hey, if something has any possible value, you should let it into your life because you don't want to miss out. Right. And that's how most people think about technology in their life. They hear about something randomly, like, why not? Why don't I sign up for this? Why don't I buy an Apple watch? I guess I have to buy an Alexa because I don't know. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I saw an ad for it. I guess I'm supposed to have one of these in my house. Uh, That's the maximalist philosophy. The minimalist says, no, no, no. You got to focus intensely on the things that are really valuable to you and only use technology tools if and when they can really, really help something that's really, really important to you. Right. And so a digital minimalist tends to use much less technology and spend much less time looking at screens than the average user. But on the other uh, side of this, they tend to get much more value out of technology than the average technology user because they're so intentional and careful about how they use it. Um, So that's the, that's the backdrop. And so the question is, well, why is this, why does this work? Why does focusing on just a small number of really valuable things and missing out on lots of other things? Why is this better than let's say, doing the really important things and also doing other things that are kind of important, right? Like why is minimalism better than maximalism? And that's where those three principles come in. Um, and so the first one you mentioned is clutter is costly. And, and that that emphasizes the point that there's, uh, there's a cost to cluttering your time and attention with all these digital tools. And the, the cost of having so much clutter, such a sort of electronic distracting den constantly pulling at your attention can far outweigh the little benefits that each of these things brings you individually. So you can't just think about the benefits of this particular app or the benefits of this particular uh, gadget. You also have to think about the cost of cluttering your valuable time and attention with so much different things. Um, So that's the first principle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess because that's... Probably based on sort of the the life stages that you've talked about, that's where a lot of people are finding themselves now, right? That they, they they at least want to assert a change in the relationship they have with with technology.
2: Yeah, and so that's why I'm, minimalism says start from scratch. In fact, the the easy that's well, not easy, but the cleanest way to do it is this exercise I call the digital declutter, where I say take thirty day break from all of this stuff, and actually don't think about it like a break. The idea is not oh, I'm going to go detox for a while, then then. Put everything back on my phone. It's no, a clean break, right? Spend 30 days without these technologies. And then at the end of the 30 days, have a reintroduction period where you say, okay, what do I want to allow back in? Why am I allowing it back into my life? And how specifically am I going to use it to really maximize the value and minimize the cost? Uh, that's sort of the core conversion experience that shifts you from a maximalist into a minimalist and tell me this so you had
1: i think about 1500 people trying this out because i think that part there the the sort of it feels a bit 12 steps does not it It's sort of you know that cold turkey might be the thing that puts a few people off so the 1500 people you had trying this out last year what was their experience to that
2: well first of all i was i was uh, surprised to have so many people sign up i thought that just maybe a hundred people would be willing to do this experiment, but it goes to show the hunger people have out there for change. Um, The reports I got back were very positive. Uh, A couple of the big observations they had is one, uh, they didn't realize the sort of addictive pull a lot of these things had on them until they actually had to step away. So the first week to 10 days in particular can be very difficult. Uh, Two, a lot of people really, really enjoyed getting back in touch with the type of analog, high-quality activities with which they used to fill their leisure time. So when you can't use digital distraction, you have to find other things to do. And people were rediscovering things that they had forgotten how much they loved. Uh, Some things as simple as just going to the library – and finding a stack of books, you know, a, a crazy assortment of books that you you're just looking forward to going back and reading, or a lot of people got back into painting or writing or various athletic pursuits or uh, skilled crafts with music or uh, woodworking, these type of things. And, and it's funny how we've forgotten the joy in these things.
1: You 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 talk um a little bit about board games, and I I remember scribbling down in a in a notebook a couple of years ago that this reminder and it's amazing that you need reminding that every time i was playing board games i was spending the evening laughing and you Mm -hmm. know so i just i just wrote down board games equal happiness and you you mentioned board games that you know it's one of these lost things that actually seems to re-energize us
2: yeah and so you know people that's why i say 30 days instead of 10 you know 10 days will will get you over an addiction but 30 days is enough time to rediscover the things you actually used to really love. And then what happens is, after the 30 days, a lot of people report oh, they lost their taste for the lightweight digital distraction. And so it's not like they come out of the declutter and are like, I hate technology, I'm a luddite. I never want to use my phone. It's just that it's so much easier for them to be selective. Like, well, I don't want to scroll Instagram all day, and I'm not really getting much out of Facebook. There's better ways to connect with people. But, you know, I use this thing to, for my meetups for my board game crew. You know, we organize on this website, I'll use this. And, you know, they just get really selective, and they come out of this thing using technology the way that it's supposed to be used, which is just a tool, that you have these things you care about and you like and you know if there's ways that you can use tech to help you do it better that you do and then that's that that the tech right. is not a, a an end in itself it's just a mean to help you get to these ends and they're a lot more happy after this uh, after this experience
1: so so let's go on. Let's just g- go through your principles, because I, I, ju- I do want to come back and, and sort of question some of the, um, the nuance of that. But so the, the next two, the next principle is optimization is important. And I think that's because you feel that, well, go on, you, you, you articulate for me why you think that's, that's the second principle.
2: Well, the other key part of minimalism, in addition to being very selective and intentional, is that uh, you're also very specific about how you use technologies. Uh, And this is important because a lot of people think about particular, let's say, services or apps in a binary way, like I use Facebook or I don't use Facebook, which is how companies like Facebook love you to think about it. Uh, But what minimalists actually do is they want to get much more specific well, how do I use Facebook? And they might say, okay, well, the only thing I really want to do on Facebook, for example, is there's a community group that organizes on a Facebook group and I need to keep up with it. So the way I use Facebook is never on my phone. It's just on my laptop. I log on Sunday night for 10 minutes to see the group updates, right? That's a minimalist approach to using a technology. It's not just what do I use, it's how I use it. And that principle says when you start optimizing like that, you can drastically shift the cost, uh, the benefit ratio into your advantage. So, so that might be that you've got certain people on notification or, or you, you're using the
1: benefit of plugging into the network, but on your own terms.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. If, if you if you think critically about how and when you're using these technologies, uh, it can make a really, really big difference in terms of preserving the value and cutting out most of the cost. So explain to me this. So principle three. Explain to me intentionality is satisfying.
1: What do you mean directly by intentionality, and where's this? Where does the satisfaction come from?
2: Well, so a lot of people, especially uh, in the West, are very concerned about convenience, right? So when when they think about Uh, drastically cutting back their use of these technologies, they can get very worried about the inconveniences that that can generate. And they say, well, if I'm not using this, I might miss out on this and that's inconvenient. Or it might be, if I don't have my phone with me all the time, I can't call an Uber, that'd be inconvenient, right? They're really worried about uh, the inconveniences. Uh, But the argument of this principle is that we see in a lot of different contexts that um, there is a ton of positive reward that you get for being intentional, about things that matter to you. And so the intentionality of saying I'm not using these technologies because I want to dedicate more time to X Y and Z which are very very important to me, that intentionality can generate a positive reward that far swamps the little inconveniences of the things that you left behind to be so focused. And so that's why I you know intentionality trumps convenience is a very important equation to keep in mind. You probably are going to get much more out of taking control of your life and doing things that you really care about, then you're going to lose uh, by uh, insisting on having that focus. The discussion with Count will be back straight after this.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1 com. Now back to Cal Newport. So, so here's where I'll come in and I'll question you. So, so look, um, I work at Twitter actually, and and. Uh, And, you know, and the thing that I would say that, you know, it's not just because I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but um, but Twitter just makes me laugh every day. And you go on. The other thing that I do, my main media consumption is podcasts. And you list at some point that you should stop listening to podcasts. And and I understand the sort of the mental clarity that you might get. But I, I just wonder if the life that you're describing feels quite barren. It feels empty. And then you mentioned the Amish and I'm sorry, but I have to say it really damaged the credibility of the idea for me, uh, mentioning the Amish, because I don't know what it is about the rights of the people in Amish society you really admire, but aren't they just a, a relic of a
2: bygone time? Well, there's a couple of points here. The reason the Amish are interesting is because they're a, a case study of a cultural group that really pushes this idea of intentionality can be more valuable than convenience to a far extreme. I mean they're, they're the extreme example of it. Uh, so people often but aren't, inc- they, aren't they just freeloaders?
1: They, they pick and choose what technology to use. If all of us moved uh, uh, if all of us moved to Amish society, then there would be no technological innovation society would be left in a sort of 19th century version of where we are the Amish you even describe it they they allow leaders to choose which
2: technology they adopt i mean that's no that's no model for technological advance is it well i don't think many people would want to actually live like the amish there's a, a lot of issues with their their culture among other things it can be quite authoritarian for a lot of people uh, but the reason again that they're important is uh, they are an extreme example so we can just use them to isolate this idea of can intentionality really be so much powerful as compared to convenience. And so let's look at the Amish. It's actually incorrect to think of them as freezing their technology uh, into a bygone period. Actually what the Amish do is they uh, have a selection process for each technology based on the main value of supporting community, Um, which is why if you actually spend time in an Amish community, you'll see that there's actually lots of technology. Um, Disposable diapers, solar panels, right. diesel generators, right? I mean, it, uh, it's, there's lots of technology. Um, it's not that it's frozen. What's, instead, what they do is when a new technology comes along, they ask, is this going to strengthen our community or weaken it? So that's their intention. We want the strongest possible community, for better or for worse. Uh, it's something that they care a lot about. And that's the rule they use to evaluate new technologies. And in fact, what they'll often do is have essentially an Amish alpha geek test it out like okay, what cell phones going to do to our community? Let's try, and they'll have some people use them. They'll watch. Does this seem to help? Does this make our community tighter, or are they separating from the community? Um, so it's an incredible intentional approach to technology. And so what I've observed is there's really no reason. That this particular religious order should still be around, right? I mean, uh, it's incredibly inconvenient the way they live, and it's not like they're isolated uh, in an island in the South Pacific and don't know what they're missing out on. I mean, they're they're in the East Coast of the U.S. They they ride their buggies by WalMarts. They all of them spend at least a year during Rum actually living, uh, in a standard you know Western lifestyle. So it's not like they don't know what they're missing out. And so to me, the fact that this order has persisted. emphasizes the reality of the principle that being really intentional about something can uh, far outweigh inconvenience. Now, as I also say in the book, no one should actually emulate specifically how the Amish live or how they make these decisions. Among other things, these decisions are made in a a more centralized manner. There's a small group called the Ordung uh, that actually makes these final decisions. It's all men. Um yeah. and so like if you're not a man, <laughs> uh, this is going to be a problem. You have no say. Uh, so you wouldn't want to actually emulate specifically what they do, but their continued existence, I think, is a sort of extreme example of how being really intentional. Um, can trump lost inconveniences, which is why I then go and find an urban Mennonite. So someone who has a religious belief that has a lot of the same principles, but loses all of the authoritarian structures. Yeah. So this is an urban Mennonite. That means you live in a city, you have normal jobs, you live among normal people, but you still care about the same type of ideas. Her name's Laura, she's a teacher in New Mexico. Um, and she doesn't use a smartphone, for example. And if you ask her why, it's because uh, this same idea of being very intentional and for her family and her community is really important. And she she really worried that a smartphone was going to keep her away from her daughter and was going to divert her attention when she was trying to spend time with people she cared about. And so she doesn't use it. And it's massively inconvenient. Um, but she doesn't care because she gets so much value out of being so intentional as serving this thing that she thinks really, uh, thinks a lot about things really important that as she said, yeah, I have to print out directions sometimes, eh, whatever. Um, you know, that is an extreme value of this, this underlying principle, which is don't fear so much that you're going to hate the inconveniences of moving away from some technologies. Uh, keep in mind that the intentionality is going to be very rewarding. Um, but I also want to clarify the first point. The step away from podcasts, that's during the 30 days okay. declutter right? And so the point of the declutter is, yeah, it is very extreme. Um, And you're not going to stay with no technologies like you are during the declutter. But what it helps clarify is what really should make the cut when you come back. And so you get someone like me, um, I don't use social media, but I do listen to podcasts. Um, You know, I I blog, but I don't web surf, right? Uh, And if you went, did the same exercise, it would probably be different. Um, I suspect Twitter would still <laughs> probably yeah. exist, but maybe you would stop using Instagram. Um, so the key is not that these technologies are, that are, uh, there's good technologies and bad technologies. Um, what's good is being very intentional and in serving things that are uh, that you really value, while at the same time not worrying so much about missing out on small things. Yeah. And what's bad is a more maximalist mindless approach. So let's talk
1: about that, because the bit I really want to talk about to, to uh, take on is the idea of conversation centric communication. So, because I think that a lot of people actually, when when you're articulating this, will see that it's you know it's like feng shui. They'll they'll see that actually, yeah, decluttering your home is quite liberating. Maybe decluttering my my digital life could be liberating. And the one thing that I think will make everyone um, swallow and sort of consider the consequences is you really. Uh, differentiate the difference between conversation and connection, where connection is what we we might be familiar with the, the daily sort of exchange of, of quick text messages or you know Facebook or WhatsApp messages, um, and and conversation is something far more fulfilling and nourishing and. One of the things you say, I'll give you the quotation, the idea that it's valuable to maintain vast numbers of weak tie social connections is largely an invention of the past decade or so. I thought that was, it's such a fascinating idea. So do you want to explain to us how have our social circles grown and what do you think the consequence
2: of that is on our happiness? There's two types of interaction that are relevant, right? So um, there's what, I call conversation actually I'm taking that term from Sherry Turkle, the, the MIT sociologist um, conversation is think of it as like analog interaction. So there's an analog component to it. So uh, I'm, I'm in person, would clearly be conversation or talking on the phone or over, you know, like a video feed, but where there's an analog component, like I can hear your voice and I'm processing the the subtle um, differences in your tones, or I can see your body language, or I can see the way that you're shifting, right? We can think about that as um, that sort of analog interaction we, we, we call conversation. Then there's what I call connection, um, which is, digital uh so maybe text or even less like little one-bit indicators like clicking on um clicking on a thumbs up or, or a heart or leaving a little comment on a social media post the research literature is starting to become clearer on this idea that our brain of course is very social and it craves social contact and the digital interaction Uh, doesn't seem to count, right? It doesn't process little texts coming back and forth or uh, likes or comments or emojis. It doesn't really process that the same way that it processes analog conversation. Um, So there's nothing wrong in isolation with that sort of digital interaction. But by itself, it can't satisfy uh, your need for sociality. Um, So the issue is what's happening is as people spend more and more time doing these digital interactions, they're pushing out the analog form of conversation. And it's there that we're actually this is the source we're seeing uh, of maybe rising depression or loneliness and anxiety among people who use more social media. It's not necessarily that the social media in isolation Is somehow making them sadder. It's that they're doing that instead of the stuff that they actually need. Um, And so that's why I push people to stop thinking about interactions online, digital interactions, to stop thinking about them the same way that you treat a phone call or spending time with someone. If the only interaction you've had with a friend in the last month is uh, digital, then the way you should think about it is I haven't talked to or interacted with that friend in the past month. That you have to. Do what you right. can uh, to try to prevent these sort of digital interactions from pushing out the stuff that actually we need—that our brain and our body actually craves. The one thing that really struck me when I was when I was thinking about that,
1: that effectively, you're you're inviting people to be honest about who their friendship support groups really are, aren't you? You, you? You're saying that you know the notion that you've got 500 friends is fanciful, and and you know most of us. Wouldn't necessarily make time to see those people in the evenings or whatever. So, so they're not really your friends. The, the interesting extrapolation I had from it was that I wondered whether there was a connection with the way that work could be reinvented. So, you know, when we talked about the, the Google coders and, you know, if you wanted to, to have these people working more effectively, I wonder if one of the issues preventing them working effectively is they're giving, given such a an unwieldy network of people that they're meant to stay connected to. And I wondered, you know, it was interesting for me as a thought experiment, whether the future of work might be people with fewer interactions, but also almost in, in sort of airtight units where they didn't really need to interact with other parts of, of a company or organisation, which uh, which allowed them that mental headspace. Does that make any sense as sort of a thought?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that's actually a reasonable idea. I mean, we, we know from the literature that when it when it comes to groups interacting informally, sort of an ad hoc unstructured way, this works really well until you get to about four or five people and then it doesn't scale. Um, So this is the issue of having a giant company that's all on Slack or all on email is that our instinct You know, honed in Paleolithic times is like, let's just talk because that's what we did. If we were with three or four hunters and we're, you know, hunting down the mastodon or what have you, is we just talk in an unstructured way. Hey, go there, come here, what's going on? Um, So that's our instinct. But yeah, when you scale that up to a 500 person company, it's just you're at an inbox all day feeling completely stressed out. And so, I mean, one of the ideas that that I've bounced around in terms of reinventing work is right along the lines that you're talking about, which is um, I think we should maybe isolate teams a lot more. So maybe Mm. with Within a small team, you know, you're know you in the same room or something like this or real near each other and, and you have lots of lines of communication open to each other you're, you, because you can see what's going on. You can see, that okay, this person's head's down. I'm going to leave them alone, but I need this from this person now and they're taking a break. And that can function really efficiently. But then there's an interface between that team and the rest of the organization that's perhaps much more restrictive and much more refined. Um, so, yeah, within a team, Lots of free-flowing communication. We want flexibility. We want collaborations the Paleolithic mind at work between teams, between teams and administration. Okay, now we should have maybe uh, much more formal communication rules or interfaces. It's a little bit harder, you know. Maybe there's a person, a literal person, who sort of sits between the team and other people, um, or there's different ways that messages are just delivered a few times a day. These type of things. Um, so I think you're onto something there, and I also think you're onto something where you say. Um, If you accept my premise that, you know, you should really not spend so much time online interacting with people because it doesn't really count and spend more time doing real world analog uh, communication. And if you take my suggestion to mainly use social tools as logistics. um, So, you know, text messaging is useful to help arrange where you're meeting your friend, but it doesn't replace talking to them. It is true and this is a a worry people have, you know, if I do this, there's a lot of my friends I'll never talk to anymore. I have a lot of friends that I only talk to digitally and there's way too many of them that I could I could have a real world relationship. And my answer to that is well those aren't really your friends and it's okay not to be in touch with them and it's okay. These weak tie connections, your 300 people who I say happy birthday to on Facebook. Uh, as I said, it's not something that we have a lot of history with in our species history. It's not something that we need or crave. Um, and it's not something that really gives us a lot of value. And so I don't know, maybe this is antisocial to say, but I think people should have many fewer friends. If they do, they'll feel much more social.
1: Yeah. I wonder if the relic that we sort of replaced it is was Christmas cards where, you know, people had weak tie links on an annual basis with Christmas cards. And we've sort of cluttered our lives by making those weak tie interactions where we're wishing someone well, but we're probably investing very little time. We've replaced them
2: with sort of digital weak tie interactions. Yeah, it's it's a funny example because, you know, people don't mind Christmas cards. But imagine if, you know, the way Christmas cards worked is that all the people who sent you Christmas cards sent you cards constantly and not only sent you cards constantly, but like jumped out and surprised you, like, read this card, read this card. And you had to read different cards and messages from them, mm. you know, 12 times a day. And the cards were really going on and on about, you know, articles they found were important and what their political views are. After a while, you would say, I don't think I need this many Christmas cards from you know my third cousin's husband or something like this, but that's what facebook is, so uh yeah we 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 took the Christmas card idea, which is you know fine um and then we made it crazy <laughs> because that really is uh the fact that we have to see you know people we barely know that we have to see so much from them um is You know, we forget the degree to so much of that is just invented. Uh, Because if you do that, you're spending more time clicking on these things. If you spend more time clicking on these things, we can sell you better ads. I mean, uh, there's not some deep social good at play behind a lot of these behaviors. It's, It's dollars and cents that don't necessarily benefit the consumer.
1: To, to sort of finish off we're coming to the end of our time but you you obviously road tested these ideas on a, a massive number of people were there any things that really surprised you or were there any things as the, the point you make is that you know i guess you're a professor doing a specific sort of job and like you say you don't have any social media accounts so you wanted to get the the proof that other people were testing these things out were there any surprises that
2: came from that field test i mean to me the most the most important observation was uh, and surprising observation, was the degree to which sort of these non-digital analog activities are important, and the degree to which that we've really, really ripped these out of our lives. I don't think we realize how massive of a change this has been in the last 15 years or so. I mean, we had TV, of course, but there was lots and lots of time in our leisure um, where TV wasn't a great option, you know, during the day and on the weekends when there's nothing really good on. And so people spent a lot more time cultivating these higher quality leisure activities. And uh, I hadn't thought a lot about that until I had these, you know, many hundreds of people um, walk through this process of, of stripping back the superfluous distraction, becoming more focused about what they use. This is a big issue. I mean, it's really hard. It, it It's hard to the point now where I often suggest to people, you might consider, Working on these sort of analog high quality leisure things in your life before you start removing the digital uh, Because that's going to make it a lot easier because it's really hard um, And so that was a big surprise to me The The degree to which we need these non-digital things and the degree to which we have without really realizing it Ruthlessly stripped almost all of them out of our lives
1: Absolutely fascinating And um, thank you so much for for talking us through this this concept now you you mentioned uh, you mentioned in the book that some of the ideas that you've had that have become your books have been scribbled down in these moleskin books that you, you've had on your shelves. And uh, I just wonder what's what's next in the moleskin books? Have you mapped out the next four or five books there?
2: Uh, yeah you'll be happy about the next one. So I'm under contract right now and I've started writing a, a business book titled a world without email. Amazing! And right. this is a book where I'm really going to get into some of those ideas that we were talking about here, um, about, you know, the way we work today with the constant unstructured communication, where did that come from? Where's the evidence that that's actually an effective way to do knowledge work? Um, spoiler alert there's not (laughs) it turns out to be pretty arbitrary and not a really good way to do knowledge work and then look ahead to well what could work be if we weren't all just sort of connected and talking uh, casually all day, what's the future of work going to look like? And so I'm sure this is going to be one that, that's right in your wheelhouse. So I'm wow. sort of looking forward to being able to get you a copy of it when I'm done.
1: Oh, I'm buzzing about that. I mean, you know, look, I and what a thrilling one that would be to road test on a few people. I met um, I met a professor of organizational behavior who who did an experiment with, with a couple of companies where they, they abandoned email on Friday and they watched what happened and then they gradually saw, saw how much they could, um, could change it. And I think the, what they discovered was the more that email was used as an external pigeonhole, effectively sort of the, the communication from the outside world, but you don't use it internally, it seemed to have a, a, a really energising effect on how the organisation worked
2: yeah so it's a great topic, and it has a lot to do with uh mismatches between organizational design and how the brain works. yeah like this is, I think neural organizational studies is really the the field of the future because knowledge work is all about brains, brains doing things to produce value, so suddenly we have to care well, how do brains actually function? How do we get a brain to actually do a good job of producing value? How do we keep a brain from burning out and wanting to quit uh, and it turns out, whoops a lot of the things that we sort of uh, in a slapdash faction put into place, like this is how we're going to work turns out to be like an incredible conflict with how the human brain actually operates. So I think, neural driven organizational management is is the future of knowledge work and one of the first places it leads you is to getting rid of those just ubiquitous general purpose email boxes and chat channels because uh, it turns out that's just terrible if you want human brains to produce valuable information
1: yeah i've always thought that one of the challenges is that unlike new iphones we, we don't have a an annual unveiling of the new version of work so getting from where we are to there looks like a a like a massive endeavor to get there but you, it's almost like you know that version of work would be better but from getting from here to there looks looks a a sort of a daunting challenge
2: Oh, it is, man, it real. It, it moves slow. I studied the history of this. You look at, you know, the industrial sector, other things. It takes, it does take a long time. Um, but you know what, it, it's usually inevitable, because there's a profit mode of driving things. Yeah. So uh, it's slow, 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 no one wants to do it, no one wants to do it. Wait, suddenly, you know, Twitter makes these changes, yeah. they're worried about it, but they they triple their productivity. You know, six months later, all of Silicon Valley is doing it, right? It's one of these things that it's slow, slow, slow until it's not. So they, like the assembly line was this huge pain, incredibly difficult that, you know, people hated, you know, at Ford's factory. Like, are you kidding me? It's just so inconvenient. So many bad things are going to happen. It's expensive. Uh, it, it was a real pain. It took a while to work it out. And then, you know, overnight, every car manufacturer was using one. So all this stuff is slow until it's not. Cal, I've been thrilled to chat to you. Thank you
1: so much for your time. Thank you. And another great thought-leading book. Uh, this is, is a wonderful one and, and looking forward to the, the next one already. I look forward to getting your opinion on it. Stimulating thinking. I don't always agree with him, like I say, but I love the thinking. Maybe this is your first episode and you want to hear more. All of the episodes about fixing work are up on the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. I took a week to promote the joy of work last week, and it was such a buzz chatting to people who listen to the podcast. Someone tweeted me, the stuff you record in your office is having such an impact. Look, I'm recording this in a hotel. Normally, I record it at home in a cupboard at the weekends. So, uh, you know, despite some pretty healthy listening figures and they've, they've been growing very strongly, I often end up thinking maybe no one's listening. So that's why I always say link into me. I honestly do welcome people getting in touch. The plan over the next couple of months is to finish some changes to the US edition, basically uh, removing some of the UK research and anecdotes and adding some UK ones. And then I'm going to start giving loads of free stuff on the website, team exercises, questionnaires and more. So uh, sort of obviously this is all constrained by being a weekend hustle, but I hope that you'll start seeing some real benefit on, on that. If you enjoyed this, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Even better, a review for the book on Amazon. Uh, We need to put cookies in the monster's mouth, basically. Feel free to link in to me. I always say that, but it's genuinely true. I'm Bruce Aisley. Thank you to Cal Newport for his, his fascinating book, Digital Minimalism. See you next time.